going. Do you have another mic? Forgive us for some technical. Is that better? Is that on? <clears throat> I think you heard Genesis chapter 14. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for um, your patience and your grace that you extend us at Big Woods. I want to welcome every single one of you this morning. Um, as I was watching the little ones exit, we are blessed as a church with many, many little ones. And so we have much to praise God for. Um, in addition to that, it is um, a delight to announce that there was another addition to our Big Woods family. Um, Adam and Rachel Crick gave birth to a little guy whose name is Ephraim Crick. And so we welcome Ephraim um, to part of the Big Woods family, especially uh, this week. Also, you see a, a glowing couple up here as we just live life alongside of one another. We have congratulations in order to, to Josh and Katrin, who recently were engaged, and so we celebrate uh, with them. <clears throat> and look forward to a, a wedding celebration in June. As we live life alongside of one another, there are moments that we rejoice in and there are also difficult moments, um, and we need to be in prayer, um, as I learned this morning that Heather, who is with us in worship, has um, lost her son this past week, 17-year-old Mason. I'm reminded in the words of Scripture that says, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. And Heather, I want you to know that you are not alone and that we will be praying for you and your family, especially at this most, most difficult moment. We have a lot before us, as Pastor Aaron was reading in Hebrews chapter 10. There's a lot there on this individual we were being introduced to in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek. And so we're going to go before the throne of grace and ask for the Lord to open our hearts and our minds as he speaks to us this morning. Would you, would you bow our heads and pray? with me. <clears throat> Father, we do come before you as your children, and we're grateful for your presence here with us. I thank you, Lord, for the fact that you see the depths of our hearts and our soul. And Lord, I think right now of um, Heather, who has joined us in worship and needs to know that she is surrounded by people that love and care, and will faithfully pray for her in this most, most difficult journey. Father, we're grateful that you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. Lord, as, as we um, pause now with your word open before us, I, I do pray, Lord, for a unique moment as we are introduced to a most important figure of Old Testament history. Thank you, Lord, for the presence of your spirit that illuminates and, and allows your word to, to take seed in our heart so that we understand our responsibility. We think, Lord, right now, the day and time that we live in, a time of 
of heartache, it seems like everywhere we look. And so we pray, Lord, right now that you would minister to our hearts, that we would hear your voice, that we would be soothed by the promises of your word and ultimately through the hope that exists in the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Personally, Lord, I just ask for, for guidance and strength and clarity of thought and wisdom and my words. May they be clear and may they be edifying to my brothers and sisters in Christ and most of all, would they exalt the name, the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen and amen. <clears throat> we have a, we have a, we have a blessing and we have a problem as well. Did you know that? Um, we have such a blessing of so many people coming that we had to add another 50 chairs to the floor that's out there. And so now we have a problem that it's your responsibility to go out and fill them up, okay? So you're going to invite your friends and your family members, and we're going to make sure that every single person who is in need of good news is here to hear this morning, and hopefully in many mornings to come, of the good news that exists in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been tracking with this guy whose name is Abram. Later, he becomes Abraham. We've known him and we've heard him. We've been introduced to him as Abram the herdsman, Abram the traveler, the worshiper, Abram the peacemaker, and most recently, a couple weeks ago, Abram the general. A portion of his story that we really do not hear a whole lot about, where this is God's man of the hour, God's chosen, God's promise for the future, actually comes to the rescue by going to war. And the reason, if you recall, is that Lot, his nephew, deliberately had chosen the greenest, most fertile valley for himself, and he snuggled up close to Sodom, a place that is well known for its sin and debauchery. Let me tell you this. Parents, hear me on this. There is always danger where evil exists okay there is always danger where evil exists and that's exactly what happened here war breaks out lot is kidnapped and uncle abram comes to the rescue he leads his men on a nighttime raid with perfect precision he executes a military operation that leads to a successful rescue mission now we pick up the story where Lot is and his family are saved. Lot is safe. And our, our narrative actually picks up right here upon his return home. Now, now before I read the text, I just want to, 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 to step back and I want to set the stage by reminding you of how we keep scripture in mind. Always think big picture. Okay? As we have been learning about the Bible, we know that it presents a plurality of covenants, promises all the way through Scripture. If you go back, remember Adam, the Adamic covenant that talks about death and dominion. These things are certain. Noah, protection and promise. The Abrahamic covenant we've heard already, and we will see in chapter 15, land and seed and blessing. The Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of law. The Davidic Covenant is a covenant of throne and lineage. And what's happening is that each one of these progressively reveal 
God's one redemptive plan that are found in Christ. And ultimately, it comes to a fulfillment of what is referred to as the new covenant, which we celebrate every single time we come before the communion table. So always think big picture. God is slowly revealing himself, and we learn more and more and more about him. Keep big picture in mind as we pick up the narrative right here in Genesis chapter 14. I'll start in verse 17. Because there's so much, we're actually going to divide this text, okay? Look at the blessing, okay, of Abraham. And next week, we'll actually look at the response of the blessing. So we won't be able to cover it all today. Just a heads up. After his return from the defeats of Ketelamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the man who went with me. Let Aner, Eshgal, and Mamre take their share. Thus, we have before us an introduction today to a new character that we've never heard of before. His name is Melchizedek. And we will learn, although it is a very, very brief encounter, that this man actually takes us a giant step closer as he points to another upcoming covenant that we'll see in Genesis chapter 15. But more importantly, he points us to the most significant character and the most important role in covenant theology. Melchizedek is priest king and he points to who the great high priest and the king of all kings melchizedek introduces us to jesus d.a carson says it like this melchizedek is one of the most instructive figures in the bible for helping us put our bibles together Frank S. Mead writes, Meet the most tantalizing man in the Bible. We know just enough about him to want to know more. And more we shall never know. A weird human meteor who flashes briefly across history's firmament and is quickly gone. Okay, here it is. Can you picture the scene with me? What is happening? Abram dismounts from his horse. He is smeared with dirt from the battle. He is sweaty and he is bloody, but no doubt 
He is, and we love this, he is a hero. Lot and his family have been brought safely back, and there are hugs and high fives and cheers from his 318 trained men. It is a magnificent and a joyous sight. And yet, it quickly takes a turn. It, it is no less joyous. It is a good meeting. As a matter of fact, it is a great meeting. But there is a heaviness. There is a seriousness to it as Abram encounters a man who turns out to be a figure of immense grandeur. Melchizedek, this, this priest king of Salem that we know so little about him. But what we do know, literally, is that he sets the stage for what is about to happen. And more importantly, he sets the stage for who is to come. The name Melchizedek means righteous king or my king is righteousness. The background to him, we literally know nothing. Scripture does not include the ancestry or his identity. Thus, this idea that there's much speculation, mystery around what people would call this shadowy individual. There are references to him in this Genesis chapter 14 is the only historical mention of him in the entire Old Testament. Historical mention. There's one other reference, and that comes from a thousand years later, Psalm 110, when David became king and made Jerusalem the royal city. And he says this, and I quote Psalm 110 verse 4, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then again, total silence. Another thousand years to the apostolic age, the writer of Hebrews writes of this same man, and, and we learn the most from Melchizedek probably in Hebrews chapter 7. In the book of Hebrews, it says that he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so there's this phrase, a couple words, a couple times, a priest forever. Arguably, we learn more from him in, in Hebrews than we ever do in the Old Testament. So much, like I said, we're not going to cover it all today. We'll dive more into Hebrews next week. Today we focus on, in a sense, the blessing Next week, we look at the response of the blessing. So here it is, number one. Melchizedek as king. What is a king? The definition is what? He's introduced as the king of Salem. A king is a male sovereign or monarch. The chief authority over a country and people. Now, if you recall, and this goes, goes back just a couple weeks to some of the details of the recent conflict that had taken place. The Dead Sea Kings, that's the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's, there's three others, five in total, who rebelled against four larger nations representing modern-day Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, led by Kedileomar. And although it was four kings against five, 
the larger coalition of forces quickly crushes, quickly crushes, like, like ripened fruit, fruit falling from the tree, crushes the smaller kings. They kill, they ransack, they plunder, and they kidnap. Now, it's interesting to note that this is no kind of local skirmish, okay? A couple guys just kind of bound. This is a large-scale, multi-nation war. In a sense, it's still known to this day as the Battle of the Valley of Siddam around 2085 B.C. This is no small skirmish. It involves nations upon nations, and yet apparently, in the very middle of all of this, there is this one king who remains totally separate. He's not involved with any of this. He's almost removed at some way from the war who remained as his kingdom name. Literally, the word Salem means peace. That's where what? Many would say, and I would suggest, it is what? Jerusalem. Okay, the same Salem, the city of God, the holy city, Zion. The same word where we get shalom, that we would offer peace to someone, that's the place that he is king of. Now, not only has he remained totally separate from this entire war, not only has he remained safe and secure from it all, but I love this guy, and you and I would love him because he shows up with what? A generous meal for the returning victors. It says that he brought out bread and wine. Now just pause for a moment, and I know that some of you are thinking the same thing that I thought. Hey, wait a minute. <clears throat> we just like won a war here. We like rode through the night miles, okay? We are exhausted. We are starving. Kind of, We're hoping for maybe something that we could put on the grill. A little sizzle, a little steak. That's what we would think. But there's something bigger that is at play here, okay? Here's the first thing. Understand this. Abram's got all the steak that he ever needed, okay? He has all the meat, all the potatoes, all the sautéed onions and mushrooms and the little French baguette dipped in oil. He's got it all. We know why, because Abraham, let's be polite here, he's loaded. He doesn't need, okay, anything. There's no shortage of food. He's not in need of bread and wine, which means what? This is telling us something. Something is happening here. Secondly, what? If you recall, bread and wine are served at another time. Symbolically to represent and reveal something to us of incredible importance. Think of another time, another war. Think of a time where blood was shed and the captive were set free. What is happening here? Stop. What is laid out before us even this morning on the communion table and every single time that we gather to remember Christ's sacrifice? So pause on this for a moment. 
Well, Abram and his men may not have been in need of physical food. They're not in physical need of bread and wine. They were what? Just like you and I today. We are in desperate need of what? Spiritual need of bread and wine. And what is represented through the bread and the wine. Remember this, there is only one that could offer that to us. I was thinking about this this week, and I wondered later on, I wonder if later on, as other times, inevitably, Abram sat down and was drinking wine or eating bread. I wonder if he would ever remember and recall this meal. I would gather to say that absolutely, perhaps as he enjoyed another meal later, he pauses and he remembers this moment of the blessing that has been given to him. Isn't it interesting that we too remember that which we eat, that which we drink? But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to Abram who is sitting at a table before we get to the table that reminds us. As Melchizedek sits down with Abram, he offers him a blessing, a blessing that is twofold. First, it's directed toward Abram, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God. This undoubtedly would bring Abram back to the time that God spoke to him several chapters ago in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2 when God himself says, I will bless you. And it all begins to flood back as there's something offering and someone says, bless you, Abram, what? On behalf of, by God most high possessor of heaven and earth. But it's also telling us something about God himself. Who is what? Three times, four times as a matter of fact, you see this phrase, God most high. You'll see that phrase, what? When we think about the demon possessed who falls before Jesus and says, son of what? God most high. That it's telling us that there's one who is above all others, most high. And not only that, but he is not just above all, he is owner of all, possessor. He owns everything. And it's a blessing that is directed also and secondly to God himself. Who it says what delivers us from enemies. And at some level, as you think about who's this man who just, just kind of rode in here, who is this? What is this telling us about? If you know anything about Old Testament history, generally there are kings and there are priests. But generally speaking, there are not both of them. They're not one and the same. Now there's a few, and it's interesting to see that Adam functions as what? Both priest and king. Noah certainly functioned as priest.
priest and king. We see Abraham will and ultimately David will. But all of these what? As these high points of these covenant point us to uh, what? The here now points us to the there. See him. See him. Melchizedek as king. Secondly, it's Melchizedek as priest. What is the role of a priest? What is the definition of a priest? One who, who intercedes. An intercessor, mediators between God and his covenant people who stand at the altar of God. And primarily they do three things. They sanctify God's holy place. They sacrifice God's offerings. And they speak God's covenant. And we'll see next week that Abram does all of these things in his response to the blessing that has been given to him. Remember I said that nothing has been spoken. There's these moments that he, he, he kind of surfaces, and then silence. Nothing has been spoken about Melchizedek until a thousand years later. Psalm 110, King David is celebrating the fact that he has ascended to the throne, making Jerusalem the royal city. And we know that Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm about David's greater son, who stands at the center of this whole kind of repetitive, chiastic, Structure. It is the most quoted Old Testament psalm in the entire New Testament. And think about this for a moment. It's very, very easy for people, men back then, who became king. King for a moment. Just pause on that. Like, we get excited if somebody just listens to what we're saying, let alone king. It's very easy for people who became king. They lived with unlimited and unfettered authority for them to be viewed as and even worshipped as a god. What's amazing is that David was never like that. Never like that. He was a man after God's own heart. What's amazing about David, and we could say, yeah, but he did this and he did this. David always kept in view the fact that there was one that was far greater than himself. He says what in Psalm 110, verse 1? The Lord say to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. We just read that again in Hebrews. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So although David, too, is in a unique position of priest-king, it's given an indication that there is still one in authority. That one Lord is doing something. He's bringing into history a new priest-king like Melchizedek. But his kingship and his priesthood, unlike other ones, is going to last forever because it was established by God himself who will not change his mind. And this is an intriguing prophecy. So what's going to happen? God is going to establish an entirely new priesthood. How did we begin our time as we gathered the first words that you heard that what Pastor Aaron read for us were from 1 Peter chapter 2. It refers to the fact that we are what? A chosen nation. That we are royal priests. In a sense, having been given a position, having been given a responsibility so as we see Melchizedek, as we eventually will see Abram and, and David, 
we see ourselves with the responsibility that's been given to us as ultimately what we always point to. We always make sure that people not see us, but they see Jesus. And there's this image that I give you could be anything in the world. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody says, I want to wear a robe and a collar on backwards. I'd like to be a priest. There's like this stodginess. Like, I just, I just have this scent of mothballs. Whenever you think of this office of the priest. And they're kind of, kind of removed from the norm. They do like rituals. And there's like oils and symbols and signs and blessings. And they're kind of, in a sense, it's like, there. But not, not so, okay? For the Jewish person, the, the role of priest is an exalted individual. Remember I read earlier, an intercessor, consecrated mediators between God and his covenant people. So what happens here is what? There, there, there's, there's a vision of showing and seeing one, connecting what? Sinful us to a holy God. And yet we know it was a thousand years from Genesis 14 to Psalm 110 and then another thousand years from Psalm 110 to Hebrews chapter 7. And that's where we begin to unpack it more. First of all, what? There's a priests that came from the line of Aaron, Levitical priests, separate. And yet, what? We know Aaron, the brother of Moses, hasn't even been born yet. The second time we get to Hebrews, it presents Jesus from the royal line of David, belonging to the order of Melchizedek, and it indicates that there's something superior here, something bigger than every other line, every other Levitical priest. And you're like, kind of losing you on this. Something's beginning to be unpacked here. Melchizedek is pointing to something. Melchizedek is pointing to someone. Who might that be? Thirdly and finally, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He is not Christ. Someone say he's Christ incarnate. No, I do not believe that pre-incarnate. I do not believe that. I think he's a real person, but he shows to us what a type. And I don't want to geek out too much on you, but as you study what the Bible, there's a lot of theological terms, and one of those that we use often is, is typology. Typological view of what, whenever you hear a type in Scripture, it means that what, in the Old Testament, it's a picture of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam was a type of Christ, the first priest king. But what? Adam blew it. That's why we talk about what? In, in 1 Corinthians 15, there's another Adam. There's the final Adam. There's the second Adam. Christ is far better. Remember we talked about Noah and the ark, and the ark is a type of salvation, is a type of Christ. And we think about, but in the ark it saved eight people. That was good. Jesus saves, but what? He saves people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Always Jesus is better. How about the, the blood over, what, in Exodus? The, the, the blood of the lamb. The lamb that is slain. 
at the moment of what? Passover. And like, praise God that the ones in that, that home are safe. They're covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's a type of Christ. But what? Christ is better than that. God's word says, whosoever will may come. It's not dependent upon you killing a lamb and spreading the blood on top of the doorway. Christ is always better. I love that phrase as well that was read in Hebrews earlier, that there is a better hope that we need today. People, look around you in this world. In the midst of all of that, consider the one who offers what? Who serves Matthew chapter 26 as he gathers those what? Disciples close up. He serves them what? Bread and wine. We see as well what? There's only one in Luke chapter 8. As someone falls before what? The Son of God most high. There's one in Matthew 28 who possesses what? Possesses everything in heaven and earth when Jesus says all authority has been given to me there's only one as it says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 74 that delivers the enemies into your hand just like Abram had the enemies delivered in his hand there is only one and later on we'll look more in depth at this as we consider the Hebrews account but you'll see what the author offers a high priestly Christology that is unique to the Old Testament. Jesus is proclaimed as the Son of God who has been appointed by God, a superior priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now you take a deep breath and you're like, okay. But, like, why do we study all this? Like, what is this really, really about when you're sitting there and you're like going through your minds? I got, I got bills to pay. Okay? And I got, I got crying kids. And I got a house to clean. I got grumpy in-laws. Okay? And we're kind of pausing and we're resting on a guy with a name that many people cannot pronounce and no one can spell. Really? Yeah, really. Why? Back to where we started this morning. Keep the big picture in mind. There are many, many characters, people throughout the pages of Scripture. There are shepherds and soldiers. And there are priests and kings and princesses and poets. There are murderers and thieves and tax collectors and prostitutes. All of them are pointing a single direction and all of them are telling a single story. Some of them, what? We know are larger and louder than others. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. But what? Keep a constant view. Keep a constant view of the covenants at the very forefront. See and savor the fact that they are revealing something to us. They're revealing someone to us, Jesus. Now, why is that? Because Jesus 
is the king of a kingdom that knows no end. And you and I need that. Jesus is the great high priest who offered a once and for all time sacrifice on behalf of us and now intercedes for us every day, every moment. Guess what? You and I need that, desperately need that. Remember this word, this word right here, everything is based. It's Big Woods Bible. Like everything is based upon this word right here. It is, it is taught to you. It is hopefully explained to you as best as we can, even with the little ones. It is preached to you who what? Every single one of us who we know in the depths of our heart, we are still fallen and finite creatures. And yet... Every single week, we are introduced to this God most high. There is God most high. There is God most high. And how do, we, how do we do that? It's this word that allows us to know him and to love him and to worship him and ultimately be saved by him. So lastly, see Jesus in this man Melchizedek. See him and savor the fact that this word reveals to us through the covenants that God makes with his children, what? That it points us to the new covenant, Jesus, the only perfect, the only perfect priest and king forever and ever. So, so just, just think for a moment as we now, what? As we are now given an opportunity to be offered, to be served bread and wine. This is really grape juice, just in case you're new with us, okay? Same concept. Something was crushed so that this could be poured out. What is this? This points to Jesus. This points to, to the work that was accomplished on the cross. This points to the good news that is needed in a bad news world. This points to the hope that exists in the truth of the gospel. This points to everything that we do. This is the foundation. This is, even defines us as a local church that we gather to remember this. Well, what is this? We know that Jesus Christ was sitting, what, with his disciples in the night that he was betrayed before he was arrested and tried and ultimately before he was crucified. And he was sitting with those, those disciples, those young men. And he said, in a sense, the way that we learn, I want to show you something so you hold on to this and remember this. And he says that he took bread and he broke it, just like I'm breaking bread in front of you. It looked like this. And he said, this is a picture of my body, and my body's going to be broken for you. And within what? Within hours, they were whipping and beating and scourging. They were punching and kicking Jesus. And his body was, was, was wrecked. And then after he, he passed around, he said, I want you to eat this. And when you eat this, in a sense, what? You're receiving the sacrifice of my body that's offered to you. And it says that he took the fruit of the vine 
and he poured it out. It's probably a common glass, and, and as he poured it out, he said, this is a picture of my blood. Just as, as my blood will be, will be poured out, this, and I want you to drink it. People who don't know churches in the gospel, and they hear about drinking something that represents the blood, you're like, you guys are just totally weird. No, 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 no. This is what every single one of us have pumping through us. Blood. Not, not literal, but what in us, that's what keeps life. And when Jesus what pours out his blood, he's pouring out his life for us. So although we are dead in our sins, as scripture say, and we put our faith and trust in Jesus, and we what? Understand that his blood paid for my sins, all the grossness, all the darkness, all the black, everything in my heart, Jesus totally paid for it. Although I deserve to suffer, and I deserve to die. Just like you deserve to suffer, and you deserve to die. And that's where this opportunity for us to just remember and demonstrate the amazing impact that Jesus, what? This new covenant that we celebrate is fulfilled. Every single one of these men throughout the ages, great. They all kind of what fell short until this one who lays down a perfect sacrifice. And it's once and for all. And we rest in that. We trust it. So what we do as a church is what we regularly remember the communion table. So we want to offer this to you. If you're a believer here today, you acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner. Nobody needs to think too hard about that. We understand and know that what? The wages of sin is death. We deserve that. But Jesus offers us a gift. Call upon him, his work, you will be saved. If you've made that decision, you're part of the family, and this is what we do as a family. We eat together. You won't be physically filled up by this. I can assure you of that. But spiritually, there is a renewal, a reminder, an awakening that, that, that takes us from the busyness of our lives, and it focuses our attention. It fixes our eyes on Jesus. I'm going to invite the elders, my brothers, and, and, and some of the deacons as well, brothers, to come, and they're going to serve this to you. So what, what we do here at Big Woods is, is um, just pause first in silence and thank God for the sacrifice that has been given. And, and I, I want to be very clear here that if you're not a believer, like you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus I don't want to be rude, but I would respectfully ask for you to decline this. You don't, you don't have to come forward to take it. It would kind of be meaningless for you if you've not trusted in Christ's sacrifice. But at this very moment, we know the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. You can take that step of faith, and you can acknowledge that, yes, I am a sinner, and I need a Savior, and there's only one. That's Jesus. If you make that decision, I would love to invite you to this table. So after a moment or two of silence, just praying in your heart, grateful, thankful, I would invite you to go to one of the five stations throughout the sanctuary, and, and the guys will serve you the, the cup and the bread together, and I would ask that you take it back to your seats. Don't take it right then. 
And as we get settled as a family, we'll bless it and eat together. And remember the promise, the fulfillment of the new covenant in and through the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this as a reminder for every single one. Take a moment to pray.